We are in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 7. We're going to read verses 14 through 24. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the father's. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, hearts of flesh and not heart of stone, that we could see our Lord and hear him speak. And with that hymn writer, say more and more about Jesus. We would see more of him. We would hear and obey. Father, help us to do that very thing as Tom uh, shares with us from the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I'm amazed y'all are here this morning. I figured you'd all be home on the phone with the police department since we were all robbed last night of an hour of sleep. Yes. <laughs> Tough room. <laughs> the more time I spend in, in John's Gospel, the more I realize how huge a miracle it was and is for a Jew to come to faith in Jesus. Every time Jesus opened His mouth, He, he attacked their whole construct of righteousness. He accused their religious leaders of the worst kind of hypocrisy and corruption. He had none of the credentials that their holy men possessed. He was a carpenter's son from a, a, a low-rent region of Palestine. Not an educated rabbi from Judea. And he said things about himself that no one in his right mind had ever said. Things about having come down from heaven to earth to give life to the world. How were they supposed to know whether he was making all this stuff up or whether it was actually true? That's the question that's on the table in our passage this morning. And the answer that Jesus gives to this multitude gathered at the Jerusalem temple for the Feast of Booths is a powerful lesson to both Jews and Gentiles in every age about how to know when teaching comes from God instead of from men. How to recognize divine authority 
when you come face to face with it. And in our day, when people don't seem to have a clue about how to know much of anything, this lesson for the ages is certainly a lesson for this age. The first response of the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem on this particular day when Jesus started teaching is recorded in verse 15. It says, The Jews therefore were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now you'll notice that they are not asking if Jesus is learned. That's not the question. They're asking how He became learned since He was not educated as their rabbis were. See, they're saying, how did He come to know the things that He is saying when He never studied under any of the great teachers of Israel? And the Jewish religious leaders, as we talked about before, placed a very high priority on education, on learning. In the interactions that took place between the rabbis at the synagogues and especially at the tabernacle in Jerusalem, most of those conversations did not revolve around the teaching of the law. They revolved around one rabbi commenting on what one other educated rabbi had said about what some other educated rabbi had said about the Word of God. That's the way it went. And it went on that way ad infinitum. It was baffling to these men that Jesus would be standing before them in the very temple of God speaking with comprehensive knowledge of the law of Moses and of how the Jewish religious authorities handled that law. Now Jesus knew the hearts and the reasoning of the rabbis better than they did. He condemned that reasoning, but, but He knew it very well. It was as if Jesus was as rigorously educated as all the other rabbis at this temple combined, and that completely dumbfounded the Jews gathered at the temple on this day. Jesus' response to their amazement was very straightforward. In verse 16, He said, there, He answered them, He said, My teaching is not Mine but as His who sent me. That's His answer. See, Jesus didn't get His teaching from Gamaliel or Caiaphas or any of the great rabbis. He never attended any of their distinguished schools. He got His teaching from Yahweh. Now that doesn't mean that He popped out of Mary's womb ready to teach. I, I, I won't pretend to comprehend the incarnation of Christ. I consider that to be the greatest mystery in the universe. But I believe that in His humanity, Jesus learned all that the prophets had written about Him essentially the same way you and I learn those things. Through disciplined examination of and prayerful reflection on the Scriptures illuminated by the Holy Spirit. If you do some study on the role of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, you'll find that the Spirit's everywhere in that ministry. 
The problem with the official Jewish understanding of the Scriptures and of the Law of Moses was not that these men didn't have access to the same marvelous truths that Jesus was now teaching in their midst. They did have access to those truths. They were just too distracted by the teaching of men to recognize the teaching of God. The first and very critical way that men come to recognize the teaching that comes from God is by putting no trust in the teaching that comes from men. We have more good books and sermons at our fingertips than ever before in human history and more different media. It's good and commendable for Christians to to learn from other faithful believers who have diligently studied God's Word. In every generation, God has given faithful teachers to His people. But there's only one living and active Word of God. And the value of faithful teachers is to drive you to that living and active Word. Not to take its place. Never to take its place. If you're reading Christian books and listening to Christian sermons online or on your car radio, but you're not going directly to the Scriptures to weigh what you're hearing against God's own Word, then you're misusing all that teaching. And the same applies to your response to this sermon and to every word that anyone speaks from this pulpit. See, we're just sinners saved by grace like you. If my words this morning don't drive you to ponder His Word, then you're wasting your time here. There's something better you could be doing with this hour. The Apostle Paul got his teaching directly from the resurrected Jesus, yet in Acts 17, the Bereans are commended for testing what Paul had been teaching them with the Scriptures. Even the Apostle Paul's teaching was put to the test of God's Word. Psalm 119, verses 97 to 100. It's a pretty well-known passage. It says, Oh, how I love Thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers. For Thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed Thy precepts. The teachers that you want to listen to are the ones that tell you how you can have more insight into the heart of God than they do. And who encourage you to surpass them in that insight. But it takes more than knowing and meditating on the Word of God. The very last verse of that passage I just read from Psalm 119 says something very interesting. The psalmist declares that he understands more than the aged, but in that verse it's not because he meditates on God's Word, it's because he observes God's precepts. That means he does them. He does them. He understands them because he does them. And that ties directly to Jesus' next test 
to determine whether teaching is from God in this passage. And it's in verse 17. Jesus said to the Jews, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. And of course, most of them were convinced that His teaching was not from God, that it was indeed from Him, and that He was a blasphemer. But most of them didn't have a clue how to how to really make a judgment about that. Jesus explains in verse 17 how to recognize his teaching as divinely authoritative, as coming from God. He says, if any man is willing to do God's will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you're willing to do God's will, you won't have any trouble recognizing teaching that comes from God instead of from men. You'll know that it isn't just something the teacher came up with on his own. Now, Jesus is God, but He never spoke a single word or did a single thing that His Father had not given Him to do while He was here on on the earth the first time. That's how it's supposed to work with any human being who teaches on behalf of God. As we've already seen at least a few times in this Gospel, the reason that people rejected Jesus' words as blasphemy was not because they didn't have sufficient evidence to know that they were true. It was because they were unwilling to do God's will. You might think uh, that pointing that out to somebody when they're resistant to, to the Gospel is a bad idea. But that's exactly what Jesus does right here. So maybe it's not a bad idea. (laughs) He comes right out and tells these Jews that their problem with His teaching is not that it's unconvincing. It's not that His divine identity hasn't already been exceedingly well attested by miraculous signs and wonders. It's not that God the Father hasn't provided abundant and compelling witness to God the Son. And it's not that Jesus lacks the knowledge to be considered credible. Jesus straight up tells them that the reason they haven't figured out that His teaching comes straight from God is because they're unwilling to do the will of God. That's a very valuable thing for an unbeliever to hear. Their problem with His teaching isn't the failure of evidence, it's a failure of humility before God. Think about it. It was a prideful refusal to submit to the Word and the will of God that brought about the curse of death in the first place, wasn't it? And it is the death by God's doing of that same prideful refusal to obey God that makes the heart of man finally alive to the truth. Our first impulse after reading Jesus' words here might be to say to unbelievers, okay, so all you have to do to recognize that every claim Jesus made about Himself and every claim made about Him in the Bible is true is just be willing to obey God. That's all you need to do. Voila! Yeah, You'll be a believer destined for His courts above. Just be willing to do what God commands. But see, that's asking the problem to become the solution. <laughs> and that doesn't work. Never, still, I was alive when John Kennedy 
told the whole country mankind is the reason, is the cause of his own problems and mankind alone is the solution to his own problems. See, that confuses the problem with the solution. The first half of that is absolutely right and the second half is catastrophically wrong. (laughs) If Adam refused to obey God before he had a sin nature, where does that leave fallen men whose DNA whose spiritual DNA has sin written all over it. No human being is willing to do the will of God until God makes him willing. Until God gives him life. Listen to God's plan to do just that in Ezekiel 36. This is the New Covenant in the Old Testament. It tells us hundreds of years before Jesus came what God would accomplish through Jesus with regard to the hearts of men. Listen to this. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now really listen. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. So what makes people willing to obey God? God! When Jesus pointed out to the Jews here in John 7 that they were unwilling to do his God's will, it wasn't so they could choose to be willing. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus' continual indictments against the Jews in his audience were not designed to slap them into a godly response. They were designed to shut them up. To close their mouths to show them their desperate need for the new heart that only He could give them. That's the lesson for unbelievers in verse 17. But there's also a valuable lesson in that verse for us who are believers. God has given us new life in Jesus Christ. He has put His Holy Spirit within us And His Spirit works always to incline our hearts toward God. To cause us to walk in His ways. But let's face it. Sometimes, you know, a lot of the time, that's not what we do. We resist doing things God's way. But this next part is really important for us as believers to get. When you're holding out on obeying God, it is no longer, if you're a believer, it is no longer because you're unable to choose obedience. All an unbeliever can do is rearrange his sins. But if you're a child of God, you have been given an amazing enablement. In fact, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In fact, you have been indwelled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him above every throne and every dominion and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. Does that sound like enough power? Like every believer, you still struggle against the habit of sin. 
You struggle against the lure, the enticement of sin, but you are no longer enslaved to the power of sin. Do you believe that? That's really, really important. Nothing compels you to disobey God. A lot of things entice you to disobey God. Nothing makes you disobey God. That would make whatever that is more powerful than the grace of God. And that's not going to happen. You are enabled to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God as an obedient child, just as the New Testament over and over commands you to do. Here's the lesson for us who belong to Christ by faith in verse 17. Whenever we allow unwillingness to obey God, to submit to God's will, to gain a foothold in our hearts, that unwillingness makes the truth look false. I'll say that again. When we are unwilling to obey God, that unwillingness makes the truth look false. It messes with our ability to recognize God's words when we hear them. And we start believing our own lies. We find it easier and easier to justify our sin. And when that happens, God's solution for our unwillingness and for our our confusion about the truth is radically different than the solution for an unbeliever. The unbeliever is dead and has to be made alive. We're alive and we have to choose obedience by the power we've already been given to do so. That's not walking by the flesh. When you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, choose to obey God, that's not walking by the flesh. That's walking by the Spirit. And it's commanded. He has made us able to obey and we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, and as grateful and obedient children do His will. And when that happens, the difference between the truth and the lie becomes crystal clear. It's amazing if you talk to confused Christians, you're always going to find a resistance to the will of God. And the ones that are sold out to Christ, they don't walk around in a fog. Things make sense. Because the Word of God registers in their hearts. This is an important issue. Now, I want to read one passage of 1 Peter 1, verses 13-16. to Listen to these commands. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." How much of that has God empowered and equipped a believer to do? All of it. And when the children of God choose the obedience commanded in those verses and in hundreds of other verses, they don't have any trouble at all figuring out what's true. What comes from God. Confusion comes from unwillingness. 
The next test that Jesus presents here for recognizing divine authority, teaching that comes from God, is in verse 18. And this test makes a demand of the teacher. It says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, I believe this is much more an indictment against the Jews than it is Jesus trying to vindicate Himself with the Jews. Jesus is simply declaring to them that while His teaching always glorifies His Father, their teaching glorifies themselves in the eyes of men. Jesus doesn't defend Himself here against the accusations of men. He doesn't seek the favor of men in any way. He simply says and does only that which His Father sent Him to say and do. And He does so knowing at every turn that His words and actions will bring about His humiliation and suffering and execution at the hands of godless men in order to accomplish the will and the glory of His Father. Once again, if we as believers don't recognize the straightforward challenge to us in Jesus' words, we're not paying attention. If a man's teaching glorifies the man, it's not from God. Teaching that comes with divine authority never glorifies the man. It always and only glorifies the one who sent the man. You can filter out a whole lot of garbage on the airwaves and online and in books if you apply that straightforward test. I still remember a guy who used to have his name on a water tower in Farmer's Branch. He said, you need to be under my teaching. I have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. You need to be under my teaching. Meanwhile, in 1 John 2, John says, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be under anybody's teaching. See, teaching is a perk. It's not a necessity. Because you're not dependent on other human beings to know the truth of God. And so when someone tells you that you are, that's not from God. In verses 21 to 24, Jesus gives us the fourth way to know that teaching comes with divine authority, that it is from God and not from men. And that is... Don't deny your own sin. And Jesus speaks here of an event recorded two chapters earlier in chapter 5. His healing of a crippled man on the Sabbath. That healing had occurred the last time Jesus had been at the temple in Jerusalem. It's clear from His words here that the religious establishment in Jerusalem was still in a tizzy about that healing a year earlier. When He came to Jerusalem this time for the Feast of Booths, Verse 11 tells us that those same Jewish leaders were anxiously looking for Him. They were beating the bushes, asking everybody, where is Jesus? We think He's going to show up. Why were they looking for Him so urgently? So they could do what they had been purposing to do for more than a year. So they could lay hands on Him and kill Him. Of course, the problem with plotting to do away with Jesus behind his back, is that Jesus always knows what you're up to. If, if the Old Testament prophet Elisha 
knew what the evil king of Syria was plotting in his bedroom, you can be sure that the king of kings knew what these guys were up to. In verse 19 of John 7, Jesus says to these Jews, Did not Moses give you the law? (laughs) And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? That's a left hook followed by a knockout right cross. He's saying to them, not only do you not obey the law that you presume to teach, but you are earnestly seeking to commit the greatest violation of that law that a man can commit against another man. You're bent on killing the only righteous man who ever set foot on the earth. Their response was to deny their evil intent and try to turn the accusation back on Jesus. They said, the multitude answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? They denied that they wanted to kill him, but that, of course, was a bald faced lie. Killing Jesus was exactly what they had on their mind, it was the top priority in their minds. How does a person's denial of his own sin affect his ability to recognize truth? Divinely authoritative teaching, it destroys that ability. Sin is insanity because it treats falsehood as reality, (laughs) but the ultimate insanity is the denial of sin. When we lie about our sin instead of humbly confessing it before God and before men, we're building layer upon layer of calluses against the truth. Pretty soon, we don't know the difference between truth and falsehood. In James 3, James says this, and he's talking to believers. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, if you're sinning, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. The surest way for you to geometrically increase the damage that you do to your relationship with God and to your fellow men by sinning is to add to that sin the arrogance of denying it. Two of the greatest spiritual lessons that I got from my dear mother had to do with a godly strategy for responding to an accusation from another person. Two parts to that strategy. The first is, always look for the truth in the accusation. She said, if we're all sinners, saved by grace, then there's going to be something true in pretty much every accusation. The second part was the part that I have found staggeringly practical and powerful. And that is, If someone comes to you with an accusation and you detect sin in the accuser, save it for another conversation. If you see sin in the person who's bringing an accusation of sin against you, and you believe that that sin needs to be taken into account, save that accounting for another day. That way you won't use that person's sin to deflect attention from your own. Now, I, some of you here know that I haven't perfectly kept that principle, but when I have, it's been revolutionary. 
So I encourage you to think about that. I think it's very biblical. We whose debt of sin was laid upon our Savior should be very quick to fess up when sin in us is pointed out, either directly by the Holy Spirit or indirectly by the Holy Spirit through the people of God. Or even through an unbeliever. Or even through a donkey. The final how-to in this passage for recognizing that teaching is from God instead of from men is to judge according to righteousness rather than according to appearance. you got to love Jesus' response to the Jews here when they deny wanting to kill Him. <laughs> instead of arguing with them, which He never does, He just replays for them the horribly flawed reasoning that had driven them a year earlier to earnestly seek to kill Him. He reminds them about that healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath, which happened just spitting distance from where they were all standing on this particular day. That's the event that he's talking about in verse 21 when he says, I did one deed and you all marvel. Then with that, that healing as his launching pad, he proceeds to lay out an irrefutable truth about circumcision and the Sabbath. Circumcision and the Sabbath in order to demonstrate to them that they were missing the whole point of the law. This is beautiful, what Jesus does here. Both the Jewish leaders and the Jewish multitudes knew very well God's command that every male Israelite child was to be circumcised on the eighth day of his life. Not the seventh day. Not the ninth day. You didn't get to bump it a day. It was the eighth day. And circumcising an eight-day-old baby was work. You're dealing with really small parts on a moving target. It was skilled labor then, just as it is now. And by the way, neither then nor now do you generally use anesthetic. It's not, you know, it's not supposed to hurt, but <laughs> it's a baby. Under the law of Moses, God assigned that sacred work of circumcision directly to the priests at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. You have to appreciate the way that God teaches the really important stuff to His people. He assigns to the priests a work that has to be done every day of the week because on any given day, certain male Israelites are going to turn eight days old. Roughly one-seventh of them. And then He forbids all Israelites to work on the seventh day of every week. Why do you think He would do that? Why would God create such an apparent dilemma? Well, how about to drive His people to look beyond mere rule-keeping to the heart of God? To the character of God, which has always been the true standard of the law. Jesus hits His grand slam in verses 23 and 24. He says, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? I love that. Not half a man, not two-thirds of a man. A whole man! He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. What does he mean when he accuses these Jews of 
judging according to appearance instead of according to righteous judgment. Well, throughout His earthly ministry, the most forceful rebukes from Jesus were directed against the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. And the very heart of His repeated indictments against them was that they practiced a form of righteousness that was not, in fact, righteous. Now, to be sure, it had the external appearance of righteousness to those who weren't acquainted with the heart of God. The Pharisees gave money to the poor as long as there was someone around to see them do it. They might even blow a trumpet to make sure someone was around. They fasted and then they walked around looking as haggard as possible so everyone would know they were fasting. They prayed loudly in public. Long prayers, wordy prayers intended to be heard by men. On the surface, they made sure it looked like they were doing the things that God's law commanded. But to those who actually cared about the character of God, the apparent righteousness of the Pharisees was just that. Apparent righteousness. It was just cheap window dressing. There's a lot of that going around. If you want a clearly recognized teaching that comes with divine authority, teaching that comes from God and not from men, you have to care about real righteousness. Not about the appearance of righteousness. Not only was the righteousness of the Jewish leaders apparent in the sense that it was fake instead of real, it was apparent righteousness because it was constructed entirely on appearance. If your behavior looked righteous on the outside, it was counted as righteousness. In Matthew 23, Jesus said to these same religious leaders, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you appear beautiful. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And he says, even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In the mindset of the Jewish leadership and of most rank and file Jews in every generation since Moses and in the minds of most human beings, certain behaviors equal righteousness. But that's completely wrong. A word or an action can be righteous, but it can't be righteousness. The effect cannot trade places with the cause. When you make the external outworking of righteousness equal to righteousness itself, you're exalting the specific behaviors commanded in in the law to become what they can never be. And you run into an insurmountable dilemma. Because some behaviors commanded in the law are mutually exclusive of some other behaviors also commanded in the law. You cannot both do no work on the Sabbath and work on the Sabbath. And yet both are commanded. God did that on purpose. He wanted His covenant people to understand that righteousness was never equal to external law keeping. 
And righteousness is most assuredly never about being approved by men. Righteous behavior is that which lives out the character of God out of love for the heart of God. Righteous behavior is that which lives out the character of God out of love for the heart of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Then come the commands. I recently read Nabil Qureshi's autobiographical book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. One of the most intriguing things in that book goes right to the heart of this. He said that in the Muslim culture in which he had been raised, people gave little or no thought to the matter of objective guilt or innocence before God. Every act was measured by the shame or honor that it produced in the eyes of men. His Muslim friends would brag about having successfully conned somebody out of their money. In fact, they would treat that as a badge of honor within their little group. But if one of them got caught in that deception and was publicly shamed, then he felt some sort of semblance of remorse. It's fascinating what Nabil says. He says, because I was raised here in the United States instead of in the Middle East, he said there was always this nagging, gnawing concept of objective innocence or guilt in the eyes of God that kind of crept out of the culture into my, into my heart. And he, he even says that he realizes that that was a marvelous advantage given to him by God. That God used that combined with the whole honor-shame thing to, to finally shame him into real repentance. Bring him to recognize that he was a sinner. I think that's really cool. This is talking about the same corrupt construct of good and evil for which Jesus was blasting the Jewish leaders right here in this passage. By the way, that added element is disappearing at light speed from our culture. And it's also disappearing from the church. There's a whole generation of young people. I'm not going against young people here. I'm just saying that it comes up in a new generation who profess to be Christians and hold to no absolute construct of truth. And they, many of them, they're wonderful exceptions. Many of them care a whole lot about getting caught than they do about whether what they're doing is good or evil. How else do you, by the way, explain an absolute disregard for, prop- for intellectual property rights where on a scale, to me, unimaginable, young people download whatever the heck they want to download off the Internet and as long as it's out there, it must be okay for them to have it. I probably shouldn't get into specifics like that because there's, you're going to miss some and you're going to overemphasize others. But we don't get to pick and choose what's true and what's good and what's righteous and what's evil. God has to tell us and we have to listen. 
I'm almost done. We're, we're all guilty of appearance-based righteousness. It's worse than that. We're all prone to it. <laughs> Every single one of us. So if we come too, down too hard on the Pharisees or on young people who download too much stuff, that just makes us hypocrites like they were. But that approach to righteousness, beloved, is a denial of God's character that cannot be allowed to stand in the spiritual household of God. It cannot be allowed to stand. We're out of time, but I just want to quickly recap what this passage tells us about how to recognize teaching that comes from God. First, put no trust in man's learning. The, the learning, the learnedness of man <laughs> is a distraction. It doesn't mean you don't learn from men. Okay. Second, be willing to do God's will. For the unbeliever, that's a call to fall on their faces before God and receive His gift of life. For, the, for us as believers, that's a call to be willing to do God's will. Third, pay attention to who's being glorified. If it's a man, you don't need to give another moment of attention to what's being said. If it's God, you need to give a whole lot of attention to what's being said. Fourth, don't deny your own sin. If you do, you will become more and more callous to the truth. And finally, judge according to righteousness, not appearance. Judge what you're hearing based on the character of God Himself. Then you'll know, we'll know, when the teaching that you're hearing demands a response of unreserved submission because it's coming from God. Dear Father, we ask that through us You would deliver lost and disobedient souls. You would bring them to finally recognize and trust the One who is true. We ask You to teach us who belong to Christ to humble ourselves under Your mighty hand as obedient children that we might have eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that are finely tuned to the truth that always sets us free. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.